Well, thank you, Ursula, for the most generous introduction. Uh, can I, too, acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose lands we're meeting today and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. And just to say how chuffed I am to be here at CEDAR speaking on this critical topic. Uh, can I thank CEDAR, Macquarie University and Deloitte for putting on today's event. Uh, acknowledge uh, Lee Kelly, Mary Delahunty, Narelle Hooper, Lucy Taxa, uh, and particularly Libby Lyons, the head of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Uh, it's not many countries that can boast that the head of their Gender Equality Agency is also the granddaughter of the first female parliamentarian. So we should be pretty proud of that. Now, yes. Now, I'm, to begin, I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is the gender pay gap is closing. The bad news is it's happening at a glacial pace. According to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency's most recent report, in 1997, the gender pay gap among full-time workers was 16.5%. 20 years later, in 2017, it had narrowed to 15.5%, $250 a week. If we continue at that rate, closing the gender pay gap by half a percentage point every decade, then in just 150 years, we will have done it. I suspect if you'd told Jessie Street or Vita Goldstein or Louisa Lawson or Eileen Powell that it would take until 2168 for Australia to close the gender pay gap, they would have told you that's not why they campaigned. They would have told you that's not good enough. And while we fail to close the gender pay gap, we see other ramifications through the society. If you look at superannuation balances for those aged 55 to 64, men average $310,000, women $196,000. Fewer women run top Australian companies today than men with the name of John. I want to talk today about some of the research on the gender pay gap and what it can teach us about accelerating the rate at which we close it. I'm no longer an economics professor, but I do get to play one at CEDAR gatherings. So uh, that's the spirit in which I come before you today. So what do we know about the gender pay gap? Well, while on average it sits at around 15.5%, uh, work by Hiao Ki at the Australian National University, one of my colleagues while I was there, uh, looked at the gender pay gap across the distribution, asking the question, is this more a, que a challenge of sticky floors or glass ceilings? Her work found that for the bottom decile, there was no gender pay gap. But for the top decile, there was a 27 percentage point gender pay gap. Uh, that accords with work that WGEA has done, showing that the, the gender pay gap in finance is 26%. Among managers, it's 29%. The gender pay gap is highest at the top of the wage distribution. And indeed, when Alison Booth and I did a randomised audit study in which we sent out fake CVs varying the gender of the name and applying for entry-level jobs in hospitality and sales, uh, we found that women had an edge on those low-paid entry-level jobs. We know too that the gender pay gap has persisted despite the fact that women have outpaced men in terms of their attainment of formal education 
and in terms of test scores. Uh, you know well that uh, women tend to outdo men on literacy tests. It may surprise you to learn that on many numeracy tests, women now have the edge. We know also that the gender pay gap widens over the life cycle and that that gap is particularly acute uh, around childbearing years. And we do have a pretty strong hint that there is discrimination going on, uh, not just from the studies, not just from the surveys, not just from the lived experience, but also from a set of intriguing studies which look at what happens to wages when people have sex change operations. Those who change their sex from uh, male to female see their wages fall. Those who change their sex from female to male, on average, see their wages rise. But there's two really important strands of research that I think can uh, shed some light on the problem and help us to uh, close the gender pay gap. And that is work being done by Claudia Golden around part-time penalties uh, and an increasing uh, amount of work being done on the intersection between economic inequality and the gender pay gap. Let me deal with each in turn. When she was president of the American Economic Association, Claudia Golden gave uh, her uh, seminal lecture on what she called the last chapter of gender convergence. Her focus was on a pattern that she had noticed across American industries and occupations. That women were more likely to be in part-time work, something which is also true of Australia. 45% of women work part-time compared to just 16% of men. And that many jobs carry a part-time penalty. That is, somebody who works 40 hours doesn't just earn twice as much as somebody who earns 20 hours, they earn more than twice as much. In economic jargon, you see a non-linearity in the, in the relationship between earnings and hours. Now, this occurs because firms don't regard two half-time workers as being a perfect substitute for one full-time worker. And this part-time penalty, Golden has argued, is at the heart of much of what is driving the gender pay gap. She shows it across a whole range of American industries. But in particular, she uses the thought example of comparing law with pharmacy. The occupation of law has uh, a large part-time penalty. Part-timers in law are less likely to, to uh, attain higher ranks within law firms, but somebody in a law firm who's working 20 hours typically earns considerably less than half of somebody who's working 40 hours. And the gender pay gap in law is among the highest across the professions. By contrast, pharmacy is uh, a reasonably well-paid occupation, the eighth best paid occupation in the United States. Pharmacy carries no part-time penalty. Somebody in pharmacy who works 20 hours earns precisely half somebody who works 40 hours. The hourly wages of part-time workers in pharmacy are the same as the hourly wages of full-time workers in pharmacy. 
And so Golden has looked at the, uh, the, what this might teach us about closing the gender pay gap. She's noted that if you look back a couple of decades, you see pharmacists largely being a male-dominated self-employed occupation. But with standardisation of drug schedules, with the development of IT systems, it's increasingly become the case that one pharmacist can walk out the door, the next one come on to shift, and the customer feel just as happy. The IT systems ensure a seamless handover. The, the standard prescribing schedules mean that people don't walk into pharmacists feeling that they must see Mrs Smith or they'll never recover from their illness. They see an expertise in the profession and in the learning rather than the specific person who they're dealing with. Golden points out that the same sort of trend that's occurred in pharmacy of work sharing uh, and of uh, allow, allowing uh, greater team, team building can also be seen in other professions. Veterinarians used to be highly male dominated, self-employed and almost all full time. But over recent years, veterinary practices have moved towards being larger team practices in which the work is shared and in which customers don't ask to see the same veterinarian but expect that across a practice they'll get standard treatment of care and the IT systems will allow the proper handoff between veterinarians. Obstetrics is another occupation Golden points to. Again, a male-dominated, full-time, self-employed occupation a generation ago has now increasingly become an occupation involving greater teamwork, in which uh, vet, uh, obstetricians will say, I'm not going to be available for certain hours and one of the other members of my practice will help you out. That's been particularly important because the demand for female obstetricians is among uh, mums who are having babies is significantly higher than the demand for male obstetricians. And so allowing the occupation of obstetrics to become more family friendly isn't just good for obstetricians, it's also great for expecting mums. The big challenge now is how we do this in other workplaces. How in each of your workplaces can you think about making your occupation a little more like pharmacy and a little less like traditional old law? How can you better encourage job sharing? Because according to Golden, if we can, have, if we can get rid of that non-linearity, if we can see an equal hourly wage for the part-timers as for the full-timers, we'll be well on the way to closing the gender pay gap. The second big strand of research that I'm fascinated by and I think could play a significant role in closing the gender pay gap is research around inequality. Now, you know the basic statistics. Over the last generation, we've seen earnings rise three times as fast for the top tenth as the bottom tenth. We've seen the top 1% share double, the top 0.1% share triple. Uh, in Australia, uh, we've seen a growing gap between the top and the bottom of the wage distribution. That increasing inequality has also served to hold the gender pay gap wider than it would otherwise be. Let's just think about the gender composition of some of our lowest paid occupations. Child carers, 97% female. Hairdressers are 89% female. Cleaners, a 
a 65% female. Now let's look at the gender composition of some of our best paid occupations. Surgeons are just 13% female. Financial dealers, just 17% female. Actuaries, 35% female. So as the gap between these occupations has increased, the gender pay gap has mechanically increased as well. A rising gulf in the pay of cleaners and surgeons drives a widening of the gender pay gap, pushes back against other productive changes we might be making in, for example, reducing discrimination. So anything that you can do to reduce economic inequality, to narrow the gap between what a doctor and a nurse is paid, uh, what a cleaner and a CEO is paid, what a financial dealer and a hairdresser is paid, anything you do to narrow those gaps will also mechanically narrow the gender pay gap. That means that weekend penalty rates are a feminist issue. Collective bargaining is a feminist issue. Proper dealing with the gig economy is a feminist issue. And it also highlights the importance of getting uh, more information into the public arena. We've seen uh, in, in uh, the last couple of months Britain move towards uh, public reporting not just of the number of male and female employees, but of the ratio, the median hourly pay of, uh, of men and women across all firms with 250 or more employees. That's highlighted the fact that Apple UK has a 24% gender pay gap, JP Morgan a 52% gender pay gap, Ryanair a 72% gender pay gap. And that greater transparency has driven more of a conversation about equality within, the, within those occupations, making sure that the gaps really are reflecting productivity rather than anything else. In Australia, we don't have this kind of information reported, but a similar conversation was kicked off at the end of last year when it was revealed that Lisa Wilkinson was paid $200,000 less than her co-host, Carl Stefanovic. Again, a conversation, uh, a greater transparency, driving uh, a better conversation about inequality and potentially helping us narrow the gender pay gap. Now, I want to narrow the gender pay gap for its own sake. But the changes that I've talked about have the great merit that they are not changes which will see men lose the same amount as women gain. We're not talking about a zero-sum game. The great thing about a workplace in which half-timers have the same hourly wages as full-timers is that that's a more flexible workplace for everybody. That's a more flexible workplace for somebody who wants to take time off to care for a child, or wants to take time off to care for an ageing parent. It's also a more flexible workplace for somebody who might want to take time off uh, to take a sabbatical, to travel overseas, to recharge their batteries. Men benefit from flexibility too. And so we should recognise the gender neutral value of this strongly feminist reform. And egalitarianism too is going to benefit all Australians. Ours is a nation that prides ourselves on our egalitarian ethos. Where many of us sit in the front seat of taxis, don't stand up when the Prime Minister enters the room, prefer the word mate to sir, and don't have private areas on our beaches. 
That egalitarian ethos is at risk from a nation in which the gap between rich and poor is widening. So if we're able to reduce inequality in Australia, not only are we going to narrow the gender pay gap, but we will also hew true to one of our great national values. Thank you very much. Look forward to the conversation today.